Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Parents are experiencing some jitters as the school year begins today for a couple of different reasons. First of all, there is still some confusion about the sex ed curriculum. Uh, and some t- teachers, some parents groups are very concerned on both sides of that issue about what's going to be said in the classroom and what the ramifications of that might be. Uh, there are other concerns, and namely that may well be about whether or not there's going to be a bus to take the kids to and from school. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Todd White, who is the chairman of the board, of course, for the Hamilton Board of Education and the trustee for Ward 5. Todd, thanks so much for the time on a busy day. I'm glad you could join us today. Oh, thanks, Bill. Appreciate it. Let's talk about the the more pressing one right now, and, and that being transportation. Uh, you talked to us a couple of weeks ago and said that you were going to do some number crunching, and there's always a concern, as there has been for the last couple of years, about shortages of buses, not enough drivers uh, covering routes. Uh, what's the status as of this morning? So looking at the numbers this morning, and obviously they're still coming in and we're, we're crunching exactly what the picture looks like, uh, but for the most part, the numbers are looking better this year than last year. Uh, we're reporting quite a few spare drivers uh, that appear to be available. Uh, so they're covering a lot of the routes that don't have a permanent driver. So right now we're projecting less than 10 routes uh, without a driver, and that's 10 of 500. Uh, so it's a smaller number than last year. So our hope is that that continues throughout the week. But with the first week of school, there's obvious, obviously a lot of changes and other factors uh that come into play. So we're, we're cautiously optimistic at this point. Did you ever get a number, a hard, fast number, about how many people did not come back? Because you really don't know that until just a couple of days before the Labor Day weekend. Yeah, roughly right now, I think there's about 30 routes um, without a permanent driver. That doesn't mean that those routes will have delays because most companies have spare drivers to cover uh, routes for a variety of reasons, for instance, illnesses, absences, other things like that. Um, so the number that we, we usually look at is whatever that number is, uh, minus spare drivers. So right now it, it looks like it's in the single digits, um, but we did see a drop off of permanent drivers as we expected. But I guess on the flip side, we, we're, we're seeing more uh, spare drivers available than expected. So it seems to be balancing itself out a bit better this year. I'm wondering if the, the publicity about this over the last three or four weeks has maybe motivated more people to get involved and maybe even apply for these jobs. Well, that's it. I, I think with a lot of the preemptive work that we've done ourselves and with the uh, bus operators, uh, we've been able to either obviously attract new drivers. Um, I think the companies themselves have been working harder to find uh, different ways to uh, retain drivers. So hopefully the attention and uh, a lot of the preemptive work that we've done um, is paying off. It's hard to tell at this point, um, but but I, we hope that that's uh, a reason for some of the better numbers we're seeing today. Well, we hope it continues, and that, that's, that's good news, actually, because I know even some of the parents I talked to last week were kind of concerned about this and saying, well, we may not even know until the kids go to get for their school bus on Tuesday morning, but it sounds like so far everything seems to be okay. Yeah, absolutely. And and what I, we recommend to parents are, are keep in touch uh, or, or uh, visit our, the Student Transportation Services website. You'll see live updates on any delays that uh, might affect your, your students. So definitely keep an eye on that. 
Um, you can also sign up for live updates by email or text. So uh, you can be up to date that way. So just stay in tuned. Um, communication is the, the best thing we can do at this point, um, obviously in addition to the, the driver recruitment and retention. So um, we hope that the trend continues this week. But obviously as the week goes on and, and beginning next week, we'll have some uh, more firm numbers to share. Excellent. Good stuff. All right. Uh, once they get to school, once they get in the classroom, let's talk a little bit about curriculum because there's still a big cloud uh, hanging over uh, not just your board, but every board in Ontario right now, about the uh, the government's move to, to scrap the sex ed curriculum, of course, uh, and, and revert back to the old one that was in play before this. Uh, uh, teachers' unions are upset about this. A lot of parents' groups are, t- are taking sides on this. It's a very polarizing issues issue. And, and as we mentioned a few weeks ago, you uh, as a board member are kind of stuck in the middle here. You're between a rock and a hard place. How do you handle this? And is there a policy that's been developed uh, by the board uh, for this first day as you move forward? Well, I think there's, there's a couple of different pieces of, uh, in this situation. Number one, um, usually the sex ed component of the curriculum isn't taught until um, the spring. So, in fact, we do have a bit of time, uh, luckily, until there's any, any major impact on the classroom. Um, we have heard from a number of, like you said, stakeholders that are, are concerned. We've heard from teachers' unions uh, with concerns about professional development and uh, the proper supports and materials that they require. We've obviously heard from parent groups that are concerned their, their children aren't receiving an up-to-date curriculum. Uh, so we're watching very closely, but I think as a board, the best thing we can do is, is make sure that everyone uh, has the information they need. And, and luckily, we do have a bit of time on our side. So our recommendation to um, our staff, for instance, is that we'll provide very, very clear direction and, of course, support that they need. Um, also for parents, uh, we're sticking to our regular routine, which is before we teach the sex ed component of the curriculum, we'll make sure there's communication out letters. Uh, and of course, our teachers and principals are available to answer any questions. And we understand that. I don't think there's going to be much of a discussion in any classroom today about what or may, not, may or may not be involved in the curriculum right now. But going forward, are you hearing from a lot of parents? Uh, I guess I would think on both sides of this issue about how this is going to roll out. Yeah, and I actually I think it, it tends to be very uh, it's heavy in terms of the the support to retain the curriculum. Uh, so we're hearing a lot from those parents and the and the groups that are affiliated. So um, at this point, uh, what we're saying is is at a secondary level there does not appear to be much change uh, because the government seemed to have taken a, a step back in terms of those changes. At the elementary level, obviously there's concerns about. Uh, what grade level some of the topics are being taught. So what we're basically reassuring parents is that uh, uh, our teachers are there. They have their professional uh, uh, discretion to uh, teach in the classrooms, respond to student inquiries. So we believe that it should be managed in, in that respect. But uh, I think a lot of uh, groups recognize, as you described, that boards are caught in the middle. So unfortunately, we can't spearhead the, the issue ourselves, but we certainly, uh, from an operations perspective, can make sure that everything runs smoothly. There's a, an interesting survey that was released today from uh, Ipsos uh, polling, of course, and uh, Nanos. Uh, uh, and Global put this out, Global News put this out. And I, I, it's a bit of a head-scratcher, and I guess it really, I think, underscores just the, the kind of conundrum that you guys are facing right now as board members. Uh, they they asked right outright, do you support uh, you know going back to the old curriculum? And it's about 50-50 uh, from the parents that were asked. I think it was about 5,000 parents that were in this study group. But then they started asking about individual parts of the curriculum that just got <laughs> dumped by the government, and the support for it is about 85%. 
uh, which tells me that an awful lot of parents who seem to think that they, they have an attitude or a, a, a statement about this and, and an, a, a, an attitude toward this really don't seem to quite understand exactly what's on the table here. Well, and, and that's it. When, when you engage certain groups uh, on a topic, uh, the topic quickly seems to turn to uh, LGBTQ issues, gender identity, um, some very polarizing uh, human rights type issues. Um, which are very serious, and as a board, um, we certainly protect any type of human right uh, very strongly because equity is such an important piece. Um, but that's not the the crux of of this uh, sex ed curriculum. I mean, there's a lot more to it. It's only one component. So when you start breaking it down, looking at all of the components, um, a lot of the the deeper information, more important information, tends to get lost uh, in those discussions, and it just becomes. Uh, a debate about same-sex marriage, which really isn't what it's about to begin with. So uh, it's very, very difficult, difficult conversation to have, uh, cutting through some of the misinformation out there. Um, obviously, the media headlines and some of the, the pieces that make it seem a bit more extreme or, or about issues that it really isn't. So um, a lot of it really just comes down to working with parents. That's why in Hamilton, we've said all along that it's actually been very uneventful in terms of the changes. It's been smooth, um, received a lot of support, and we have very few families that actually opt out of the sex ed component because at the end of the day, uh, there aren't those polarizing issues uh, actually in the classroom being taught. Uh, so, uh, quite frankly, it seems to run quite smoothly. Well, and, and that's part of the misconception. I think an awful lot of people have kind of hung their hat on when it comes to their opposition on this. Uh, is, you know, they're under the impression that, that you know, words like penis and other things are, are going to be mentioned to get kids in kindergarten. And be, well, we don't want our kids exposed to that sort of stuff, which is totally untrue. And anybody who's read the curriculum could understand that. And, and, and what I found interesting about this is obviously there's a new government in and they decided this is what they want to do. But the reality here is that I thought this whole furor over this curriculum had long since subsided. There was one small, very vocal group that still were opposed to it. And they seem to have won the day as far as this government is concerned. Well, and, and that's it. I mean, a lot of the, the groups and a lot of the initial debate uh, was, again, once, uh, once again about same-sex marriage and, and gender identity. Um, and that seemed to be the crux of everything that we're going to teach students uh, and, and instruct them you know, in certain ways that just simply don't apply. Um, a lot of what we do is, is we inform students. We don't teach them values. Values are, are taught at home by, by parents. Um, but we provide the information and we teach students about uh, the student or, or teacher or family that, that uh, could be sitting right next to them in class or uh, next door to their house. I mean, we, we're here to prepare students for, you know, a diverse world. And we want to make sure that they have a complete understanding of, of everyone that steps foot into our school. So we don't hide identities of individuals. Um, in fact, we do very much the opposite. Uh, we celebrate uh, the diversity that we have in our schools. So it really comes back to some of those fundamental debates. But once again, it, it's using the, the topic of sex ed, which is very important for students and preparing them for some of the risks out there um, and using that as a platform to now talk about a, a completely different issue that uh, really doesn't apply in a lot of cases. What about the teachers that do talk about this? And I'm not, I, I know that it's been characterized in some circles, Todd, as teachers who are just going to blatantly thumb their nose at the government and do, but, and, and I think that's obviously a characterization that they're using to try to substantiate their point of view here. But in reality, this, some of these issues are going to come up, even with the quote-unquote new curriculum, which is really the old curriculum. 
Uh, issues about LGBTQ issues, issues about about civil marriage and same-sex marriage are going to get asked. Are the teachers supposed to say, I'm not allowed to talk about this? And if they do, if they do talk about it, you know, the premier's threatening ramifications. Uh, do you any idea exactly what that means? Yeah, and then this is where the messages that we've said to our teachers are, is that we support their professional discretion. Um, they are professionals. They know their classrooms. They know how to teach. Um, obviously, when it comes to curriculum, curriculum doesn't mean just a discussion, per se, in a classroom. Curriculum is a, is a, is a lesson plan followed by uh, tests and evaluation after the fact. But if discussion came out of whatever the lesson plan might be, questions are asked by students, there's, there's, to insinuate or suggest that um, certain words or topics just simply can't be spoken in the classroom, we think is, is absolutely absurd. Um, teachers will use their discretion. Uh, they'll answer questions. They'll, they'll determine what's appropriate in terms of uh, the, the audience that they have in front of them. So uh, obviously if they go <laughs> way out of line, whether it's sex ed or any other topic, um, we have mechanisms to, to address that. But we don't want our, our teachers feeling scared about these issues. We want them to feel empowered. We want them to make sure that they make the best choices. And in this case, we don't have any concerns as a board. And certainly our staff, what we're telling them is that we're going to support them with the proper materials. We're going to make sure they get the professional development to catch them up on uh, the exact uh, approach that we expect. Um, but at the same time, like any topic, uh, we encourage them to use their professional discretion. I, I sometimes fear that, that we're reverting back to the days of the Scopes Monkey Trial. You know, where we just you know you can't have anybody in the classroom talking mm-hmm. about anything except the prescribed doctrine, which is really what some people are trying to push on other people now, and that's frustrating. I, I guess this is really going to come to the fore, Todd. When and if, and I got to figure it is going to happen at some point. Somebody's going to call one of those snitch lines and complain about a teacher. I guess the board's really going to have to decide right then exactly how they're going to po- move forward on a policy like that. Yeah, and I think as a board, our expectation is clear, and that is we follow provincial curriculum. So when it comes to lesson plans, when it comes to evaluation and testing, you follow the provincial guidelines. But if there's discussions in classrooms, if there's questions, um, teachers are going to answer them in the best way possible. So uh, and as long as the teacher's following the curriculum and, and topics and discussions extend from there, uh, we're comfortable with that. So you shouldn't be seeing any headlines in Hamilton that a uh, teacher is being disciplined for uh, using the word, uh, you know, LGBTQ in a, in a young grade. I mean, that just simply isn't applicable. Once again, a lot of these topics are, are embedded in human rights. Uh, the rise in our schools outside of uh, sex ed uh, uh, component of the curriculum. It could be any day in the classroom certain topics arise in the schoolyard elsewhere in our schools. So we're not banning certain words or certain topics from our schools. To suggest that is is, is completely ludicrous as far as we're concerned. Um, but at the end of the day, teachers will teach the curriculum, and then from there, obviously, use their their, their best uh, their best discretion. Well, that's uh, the common sense approach to it. That's not, not necessarily the way it seems to go sometimes, but I guess you're just going to have to uh, deal with it when it happens. Todd, thanks as always. Busy day for you. Really appreciate you taking the time with us. Yeah, thanks a lot, Bill. We appreciate it, too. Todd White, Chairman of the Board for the Hamilton Board of Education. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It was a, uh, a, a well, a raucous session of the uh, summer legislature after the uh, Doug Ford government was sworn in. Uh, they moved forward on a number of different initiatives, uh, some surprising because they didn't really talk about it during the campaign, others that we sort of knew were coming, but uh, maybe the implementation or the rollout of it was a bit of a surprise. But uh, in an op-ed piece in the Toronto Star today, there is an interesting perspective on this. 
uh, about uh, the number of uh, initiatives by the Doug Ford government that seem to be uh, potentially, anyway, tied up in the courts. Uh, a number of citizens' groups are challenging some of these initiatives. Is that going to slow down the momentum? Is it going to make them change course on this? Alan Carter is uh, the anchor of uh, Global News at 5.30 and 6, and, of course, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Alan, good morning. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Listen, you better be, better be careful, Bill, or I'll sue you. <laughs> Get in line. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, and by the way, I don't know how many times you guys have heard that. Anybody in the Queen's Park uh, over the last number of years? Uh, the, the finger wagging and the stuff that's gone on, but I mean that's that's another issue. But it doesn't happen anymore because you guys are kept what about forty feet away from anybody who's making announcements these days. Well, it, for for the premier, yes. However, um, the the same rules have been in place for, for ministers. We, you know, there's been a lot of talk, Bill, about access, and I, I think some of the talk has been a little overblown, to be frank. Well, and we've seen that with some of the things that have rolled out, as you mentioned, with other ministers, uh, with uh, Caroline Mulroney and a, a few of the others, uh, Vic Fideli, that are out there. They, they, they don't seem to take the 10-foot pole up before they start making announcements. I think they're, they're not that scared of you guys. Well, I, I guess I take it back to uh, the previous administration. I mean, you know, we, were, we didn't scrum Kathleen Wynne with her mics in her face either. She was always a distance away. Now, she didn't have, like, a rope the way that the Premier does. But, again, I, I have a hard time getting two, uh, uh, you know, arms up in the air about it, especially since they seem to have stopped the clapping. The clapping was outrageous, but that seems to have, at least for now, gone away. Alan, is that the new normal? I mean, you know, because the Harper government's done that. Uh, the, uh, Justin Trudeau may be a little more amenable to being in crowds, but at the same time when they're doing press announcements, that really seems to be the way things are going to be. You guys are over here. Uh, you know, our supporters are going to be over here. And, and, you know, you can't tell, of course, when we saw the clips that you guys play on the news at 530 and 6, because, I mean, all we're seeing is the camera angle. But th there seems to be almost a choreographed setup for just about every one of these announcements, no matter who the government is. Yeah, again, and remember that every government tries, Bill, to, you know, manipulate and manage its own message in its own way. And the liberals had their way of doing it, and the conservatives have their way of doing it. Now, where I have some trouble is with things like Ontario News Now, which you may have heard about. That mm -hmm. is the uh, government-produced news-ish content uh, hosted by Lindsey Vanstone, and... The other day when they did Buck a Beer, she had uh, a piece on that w was posted to all the social media platforms that said, the days of the government putting its hand in your pocket when you want to buy beer are over. Except for that's an absolute falsehood. The Buck a Beer has nothing to do with the taxation level from the government. The government's still taking as much money out of your pocket when you buy a beer as they ever were. So that's where I really start to have some trouble with you know, the government putting out its own messaging and putting out false messaging. Well, and that, that's always going to be the conundrum, isn't it, for, for the Queen's Park and, and, and Parliament Hill bureaus. I mean, is, is trying to separate. Uh, the, you're always going to get a little bombast, but then you know, when it crosses that line into inaccuracy, I mean, somebody's got to call them out. Absolutely, and that's and that's the job of journalists in this province is to stand up and say that is false. 
Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, the piece that, uh, that Martin wrote in the in the Star today because uh, we've we've talked about this I think in piecemeal about some of these ideas and some of the issues of, about court actions or proposed court actions against some of the legislation. Uh, it's not unusual, Alan, for a new government to to ruffle a few feathers when they come in and say, "Okay, uh, there's a new sheriff in town. We're going to do it this way." But but now you've been doing this for a long time. Is is this an anomaly to see this many uh, citizens groups deciding to go through the courts to try to, to to rectify what they think are wrongdoings by a new government? Well, yes. I, I mean, I've never seen anything like it. But I mean, this entire year, twenty eighteen uh, headline, never seen anything like it in Ontario <laughs> politics. I mean, it's just, it's really been the entire year. And yeah, the, the Ford government has decided to come in and be very activist and very. Um, you know, quick to move on these things. And I think the public appreciates it, but there, you know, there are legal documents and legal troubles that come along with making a bunch of these moves. And what, what the Ford government is currently facing are two kinds of lawsuits. One, driven by ideology, and that, in that category, you would put the same-sex curriculum rollback, um, the cancellation of the basic income pilot project, and a couple of other things that, you know, that interested groups with a political agenda, or at least a different political agenda than the Ford government has, are suing. Then you have business, and this one is, I think, much more problematic for the Ford government. And when you see things like Tesla, and then moving very quickly to say, oh, we're going to cancel this thing, but not really, and clearly the, the judge who issued the verdict of this was pretty outraged at the lack of consultation at all by the Ford government before they went and did this. And now, of course, they've had to reverse course and change their minds. And going forward, uh, the public is not going to be uh, particularly forgiving if these lawsuits continue to mount up and that, the, you know, there's a bottom line for all of it. We as taxpayers pay to, for a legal defense for this stuff. Well, and, and speaking of, there's the $30 million that have been set aside, of course, for the the carbon tax uh, fight that uh, that they're anticipating in federal court at some point, uh, although there aren't too many other takers. Even Manitoba's decided not to do this uh, because they've received legal advice that it would be frivolous to actually go through this in a waste of money. But they've already budgeted for it. So, I mean, obviously these guys are, are working, it seems anyway, Alan, more towards ideology than they are through pragmatism. Well, there's a, there's a mixture of ideology and uh, pragmatic approach within the Ford government. You see things like ideology driving things like, let's say, for example, cannabis sales. So the previous government had signed leases and had put things in place to have um, the liquor store, the LCBO, essentially run cannabis sales in this province, being staffed by OPSU members, by union members, and just on a pure ideological basis, the Ford government has come in and said, absolutely not. We are not expanding the base of OPSU at all. We're canceling all of this stuff, and we're going to give it to the private sector. And that has caused a delay, as you know, in Ontario. We will not have storefronts until at least next year, even though marijuana will be legal as, October, as of October 17th by mail order in this province to meet the federal requirements. And that kind of gives you a sense of how this government has come in and said, no, no, we have a different take on things, and we are going to move things around and change stuff up. 
But when they do things like that, uh, what what are the, the legal ramifications? I guess we'll get that answer in, in short order, uh, you know, when some of these things come to court, if they actually get in front of a judge. But like the Tesla situation, I was surprised, by the way, that the decision on that came down as quickly as it did. But does that open the door for some of the other people that are going to feel that they were wronged by the cancellation of the Green Energy Act? Uh, the number of uh, companies that invested millions of dollars, and we're told that they may be seeking compensation. And, and again, that goes back to your point a second ago, Alan. Uh, you know, are we going to be on the hook for that? Well, that could very well be the case. And then you, you know, you think of the outrage um, that surrounded the cancellation of those gas plants. And just cast your mind back to 2011. That Mississauga gas plant was canceled in the middle of that election campaign. Essentially, the liberals said, "Well, this is this was an election promise that we made," and then they won, and then they canceled it. And then it cost us a billion dollars because of lawsuits and all kinds of other stuff. And the difficulty with cap and trade is that as we exit it, we have all of these corporations that have, in good faith, purchased credits and gone through the entire auction system. Um, and now none of that, none of that exists anymore. So all of that capital, all of that cash outlay, many corporations are going to be seeking redress for that, looking for money back and clarity. And right now we don't have any of that in Ontario. The the big one, of course, that's obviously being talked about a lot in, in the GTA, of course, was his, uh, Ford's decision to slice the size of Toronto Council. That looks like it's going before the courts. Now, I, I don't know where that's going to end up, Alan, but I was interested to see, I guess it was on Friday, that one of the judges who's overlooking some of this material here was asking, I guess somewhat rhetorically, uh, did you not seek uh, legal advice before you went ahead and did something like this? Which kind of indicates that they're going to look at this with kind of a crooked eye, too. Well, that's a possibility. I mean, the difficulty with this one is, is that you had a campaign essentially already underway uh, and then changed the rules, and then changed the rules in only one municipality in the entire province. So, I, I you know, I'm not a lawyer. I don't even play one on TV, Bill. But, uh, <laughs> so I, I, don't, I, I don't know what the validity of the argument will be. I mean, I think that the government has, certainly the provincial government has the power to do this, the, the hook is going to be whether or not the courts agree that the timing and that the way that it was done was incorrect. I, and I'm of the same mind. I mean, if they had come along and said, by the way, this is the last election, you guys are going to elect this many members starting going forward, or if he'd done it halfway through a term, that, that's, that's easily done. I mean, we've seen that happen with things like amalgamation and, and some other previous government initiatives. But I, I got to wonder if doing this after, you know, the, the writ has been issued and the, the nominations have been in, uh, to change things at this point. I'm, I'm wondering if they may just say, well, you know, not for this election. But they're going to have to make a ruling on that pretty quickly, too, aren't they? Yeah, that's going to come down quickly. You have to be watching that. that. Keep your eye on that. That may even happen this week, I'm told. So what what does this do to the government's mindset? Does it, does it give them pause and say, oh, we better take our foot off the accelerator a little bit here? Maybe we better think about a few of these things? Or, or are they still going to just put their head down and keep plowing forward? Well, certainly the indication is that the government is going to keep going. Um, obviously, you know, as the lawsuits mount, and if losses begin to mount alongside those lawsuits, then probably they'll have to take a look at it. But keep in mind, Bill, that this all, everything that the Ford government is doing so far, has been playing really strongly to their base, mm -hmm. has been really playing very, very strongly to those that have elected them. And I think there's a belief out there that, wait a second, the courts are going to now get in, involved in something and stop 
uh, a government that just won a monster majority by promising all of these things, and now we can't have them because the courts say they can't have them. I think there's a big portion of the population that's going to side with uh, Premier Ford on that, even if the courts order him to, you know, do it differently. That's that's the politics of it, though, isn't it, Alan? I mean, you know, we saw this happen, for instance, with the Harper government with the tough on crime legislations, you know, and a number of those things were were buried in omnibus bills, and the opposition parties went crazy on them. A lot of that stuff got turned over by the Supreme Court. But, you know, the Harper government can simply turn to their base and say, look, we tried. We know we tried. It's those guys up in, you know, the court. They're the ones that are the enemies right now. Uh, And that's obviously a card that Ford can play here if he starts losing some of these. Absolutely. And keep in mind, you mentioned that $30 million that's supposedly set aside to fight the carbon tax. I mean, what better way to bolster your own reputation uh, amongst the province to just elected a government that promised no carbon tax to say, no, no, I'm going to fight it. We're going to fight it. We, we said we're not going to have one, and you just gave me 76 members to say you don't want one either, so we're going to spend the money. It's uh, going to be interesting to see how this rolls out. Now, they're, they're on a bit of a hiatus. When do these guys get back to work? Uh, it's uh, two weeks. And uh, let's, uh, let's, let's just call it as it is, Bill, because uh, I always uh, like to point out, especially when we're in editorial meetings and somebody complains about, well, so-and-so, they're, you know, they're not sitting. Those MPPs work pretty hard even when they're not at Queen's Park. Well, sure, and the phones are ringing right now because of things that, well, the sex ed curriculum and so many other things. And and anybody who thinks the government is is uh, just sitting around doing nothing right now, rest assured their lawyers are working uh, based on some <laughs> of the stuff that that we've said about that and what's uh, before them over the next little while. Uh, busy day for an awful lot of folks. Alan, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate the time again. Bill, can I just uh, sell some soap here? Uh, Focus Ontario <laughs> yeah. returns to the airwaves coming this weekend, Sunday morning at 11 a.m. The great Focus Ontario returns again with a look at what's happened over the summer, and we're going to really tee up what to expect in the next couple of months from the Ford administration. With new cast members. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of the some of the folks that starred in the last couple of uh, years of the show have have moved on, I guess. But but that's yeah, the, a new cast. That's that's the essence of a great show, Alan. You, you can replace those people with others, and you've done that very very capably. <laughs> we'll be watching We're for just, that this Sunday. Thanks again, Alan. Thank you so much, Bill. Alan uh, Carter, of course, you watch him at Global News at 5:30 and 6. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Trying to make heads or tails of the NAFTA situation. This changes almost hourly, depending on what's being tweeted out of the White House, of course. Uh, And uh, I guess one of the things that really uh, set the the fires aflaming about this were the uh, quote-unquote off-the-record comments uh, that Donald Trump uh, was quoted in from, actually not from Bloomberg, it was an interview that he did with Bloomberg News, but uh, the Toronto Star got a hold of the interview, uh, and they were not bound by the the promise of confidentiality that Bloomberg gave, uh, which obviously made uh, Trump rather irate. Uh, but those records that were uh, they were words rather that are on the record, and it certainly had an influence. And, and Trump certainly uh, wasn't going to back down. They actually printed my off the record. They said, President Trump said off the record, and then they go on to this. I said, this is the first. This is the first. These are very dishonorable people. But I said, in the end, it's okay, because at least Canada knows how I feel. So it's fine. It's fine. It's true. Two smattering of applause. Uh, again, actually, there's Trump conflating two different stories. Uh, it was not Bloomberg that reported the interview. It was the Toronto Star uh, through their sources that got the interview. But uh, Trump just seems to throw everybody into the same basket, obviously. But what does it do to the negotiations, which, by the way, are set to resume again tomorrow? 
uh, because we've got conflicting uh, tweets from tw- uh, from Trump again about Canada's role in these negotiations, uh, suggesting at one point that it's not that important uh, for, for Canada to be involved and he just might exclude them. Joining us to talk about this is Robert Vothwell, who is a professor in the Department of Canadian History at the Mug School of Global Affairs and a professor in the Department of International Relations at the Mug School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Robert, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you back in the program today. Delighted. Let me ask you about maybe the elephant in the room here. Whether or not Canada can be excluded, there are some uh, on both sides of the border right now, Robert, that are suggesting that, look, it can't do that. There's a, it's a trilateral deal. Uh, you can't just exclude one party, whether it was going to be Mexico or Canada. Uh, some others are simply saying, yeah, they can pretty much do whatever they want. What, what, is, is there a, a clear path here, for, or is this going to get simply be up to speculation again? I think it's speculation. Um, I mean, uh, Trump's assertion that uh, he can renew NAFTA or something like NAFTA without uh, Canada is not true. Uh, I mean, the American rules or American laws are quite specific. And, uh, it, you know, what he was supposed to be doing was renewing NAFTA. That's what Congress gave permission for. Um, so that could be a problem. My guess is he might try to do it anyway. Uh, in which case it would get all tied up in litigation, absolutely bound to happen. But for Trump, um, I mean, I, I think the main thing is publicity or it's a PR event or uh, it's what's reported. The actual substance of it doesn't matter all that much. But can the president uh, arbitrarily uh, just scrap NAFTA as he's been threatening to do for the last year? Um, he can denounce it, yeah. I mean, there's uh, that's a technical term. Um, in other words, what Trump can do is give notice of the termination of NAFTA, which I think would take six months. Um, and I'm pretty sure that's in his power. Uh, on the other hand, uh, NAFTA is all bound up in particular financial legislation from Congress, and it's a lot more difficult to undo that. So while, yes, he could, uh, I think it's an executive power, uh, he could, um, give notice of termination of NAFTA, um, I don't think that uh, it would be gone entirely. So it would get all tied up in Congress. And you know the problem there is the Americans are about to have their midterm election, and uh, Congress will be adjourned for the election, and it doesn't get back until December. So, uh, I mean, there's going to be a lot of toing and froing. So if anybody's confused about what's happening, join the club. Yeah, it's a pretty long line at this stage, I would think. But, but <laughs> and let's, let's, about that point about responsibilities, and, and you mentioned just a second ago, Robert, that the, the, the fact that these negotiations were even started was at the behest of Congress. I mean, Trump may have, you know, said, I want to do this, but uh, trade deals are, are, are actually done through Congress, not through the, the, the White House, are they not? Yeah, I mean, if you look in the American Constitution, it's very plain. Uh, Congress uh, has control over trade, period. But, you know, that didn't work very well uh, because it's awfully hard for a foreign company, country to negotiate with 535 individuals in Congress. So the Americans worked out a kind of short circuit, and the short circuit is that Congress gives the president permission to negotiate on a particular deal. It has to be specific. And um, so the president gets that permission, then he has to bring it back to Congress, which has to pass it. So uh, while the negotiations 
belong to Trump or a uh, Trump-like figure, um, the actual passage of the legislation uh, absolutely depends on Congress. So he, he can't implement something without congressional permission. In fact, he can't start negotiating without uh, congressional permission. Are you surprised that, that at least some members of Congress, I guess some of the Democrats, but any, a larger number of people in Congress have, have not pushed back against the president about this? Um, no, I'm not surprised. Um, I mean, it's Republicans as well as Democrats. And um, I think the, the reasoning there is that every, everybody is just astonished uh, that Canada is now the object of his rage. I mean, a lot of people in Congress and elsewhere uh, had grievances against Mexico, but Canada, I mean, Canada is the most popular foreign country in the United States, uh, and Canadians are generally regarded, if they're regarded at all, as uh, innocuous or friendly or best friends or what have you. So choosing Canada as a, as a target... Um, is not something that's going to get you political points, and, and people in Congress are aware of that. So, uh, I mean, that's the first part. And the, I mean, the second part is, of course, in the NAFTA negotiations, almost all the American grievances were against Mexico. But uh, Trump, uh, Trump has a particular animus towards Canada, which is quite unique. I mean, it's, it's, this has just never happened. Um, and he's made us his uh, his principal target. So, and the explanation for that is more psychology than, uh, than it is economics or politics. Although there obviously is a political bent to this. I mean, if you can put your finger on it, and it's very difficult to, to attempt to do this, but you pick up one day that, that where he really seemed to turn, it was probably after he left that G7 meeting and, and was outraged about some of the comments that the prime minister made, and basically accusing Trudeau of stabbing him in the back, although the comments that the prime minister made were really nothing he didn't say at the meeting itself two days before that. Maybe Trump wasn't paying attention. But that really seemed to turn the tide, and now he seems to be making it personal. Um, I don't think that Trump ever really liked Trudeau. Um, I mean, you know, here we're in psychology, but uh, I think he sees Trudeau as somebody who's very attractive, which he is, um, and, uh, you know, everything that Trump is not. Um, worse than that, I think he sees uh, Trudeau as um, a kind of surrogate for Barack Obama. Um, you know, uh, Trudeau and Obama are friends. And uh, Obama sort of passed the mantle uh, on to Trudeau. I mean, you know, this I've seen evidence for this. So probably Trump is reacting that way. And uh, but you know, the other problem, of course, is that Trump says whatever comes into his head. Um, <laughs> and uh, his grievances about Canada um, or about Trudeau, for that matter, um, are lies. Um, and it's it's awfully hard to negotiate with somebody or deal with somebody uh, who sits there and repeats lies at you. So um, you know we're we're caught in a, in an absolutely unprecedented situation uh, where we're dealing with a, a negotiating partner um, where you can't really tell what you're negotiating about. So um, yeah, I mean that's. Uh, uh, that's a huge problem. Whenever I see people suggesting that uh, Trudeau should rush down to Washington and fix it all up with Trump, I mean, that's nuts. Uh, I mean, Trudeau's the last person who should be personally engaged with Trump. 
And, and I know people are looking at that and saying, well, why? you're absolutely right. I mean, obviously there was a chemistry between Trudeau and Obama. Uh, I mean, as there was with uh, with Mulroney and Reagan. Uh, but it hasn't yeah. always been that way. I mean, you know, Richard Nixon couldn't stand Pierre Trudeau, and, and certainly LBJ didn't uh, care much for, for Lester Pearson. But it never really seemed to have that much of an impact when it came to things like trade deals. It might have been a personal dislike, but it didn't filter down to that level. Yeah, well, that's absolutely right. Um, you know, don't forget, Nixon was highly intelligent and rational um, when he wasn't drunk. Um, but, and, and Johnson the same. I mean, they were very concerned uh, to keep trade relations, economic relations with Canada, on an even keel. And it never occurred to Johnson that he, you know, that he would retaliate against Canada for unfortunate remarks made by Lester Pearson. So, but Trump's different. Uh, I mean, Trump goes out and creates uh, crises, and obviously this is part of his negotiating strategy. And uh, it doesn't matter to him, really, what the, what the occasion is or what he's going to say. You know, he talked about 40 years of abuse by Canada of NAFTA. Well, that's just nonsense. Uh, but, of course, he has no idea whether it's true or not, and he doesn't care. Well, that was, yeah, the classic one, I guess, though, was when he talked about, you know, we actually have a trade deficit. And the prime minister corrected him and said, no, 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 we know it's a deficit. Uh, and, of course, the numbers, that's false. Uh, and even when faced with it, Trump admitted, yeah, I just made that up. Uh, but but his, his base buy it hook, line, and sinker. He needs only to tweet it, and it becomes fact as far as they're concerned. Yeah, I think that's right. And, uh, you know, that, that takes us into a whole different realm of politics and psychology. Um, but let's not forget, the base are about mm, 35 to 40 percent of the U.S. electorate. Uh, Trump's poll numbers are starting to go down. At least the latest ones aren't very good for him. So it's possible uh, that, you know, the base will either not be as large as it has been, or alternatively, that even the base will find Canada uh, really quite implausible. Um, so I, I'm not sure that uh, the issue of Canada is, is something where he can absolutely rely on the base. It's possible that the issue of Canada will start diminishing the base. How do you cut a deal, though, Robert, to your point from a couple of minutes ago, with, with a country that, that basically, as you say, is, is basing their arguments on falsehoods, uh, and Trump has, has admitted in the Bloomberg interview that he wants to make this deal as unpalatable as possible so that Canada can't deal with it. Uh, but we do, I would think, at some level, still need an after deal. But, boy, that's, uh, that's a pretty huge obstacle to overcome. Yes, it is. Uh, and I'd hate to be in Trudeau's uh, position. Uh, because we have a series of unpalatable uh, alternatives. You know, the Mex obviously what he's aiming at right now is for Canada to come in and sign the deal that uh, Trump's emissaries have negotiated with the Mexicans. And that's a very bad deal. And I mean, not only is it a bad deal, but uh, it's incomplete in the sense that um, Trump has not rescinded the tariffs on steel, or on aluminum. Uh, you know, the Mexicans have gone onto their knees, they've signed whatever he wants, uh, and yet he, uh, he doesn't reciprocate by uh, canceling the, the steel tariffs. We'll have the same thing, incidentally. If we sign, uh, he will not rescind the, the, the steel tariffs. So uh, you have to think that this is a really um, bad deal. 
And just about every serious Canadian trade negotiator from the past 40 years, including some of the people who negotiated for Mulroney, uh, all say, don't sign it. Um, you know, and it's hard, it's hard to see, um, how we could. But, you know, let's just look at the optics. You know, I mean, I'll never forget that ceremony that he had last week with these wretched Mexican delegates, you know, standing there looking as though they, you know, they'd rather be on Mars, uh, and humiliating them, and then humiliating the Mexican president. Now, if I were Trudeau or any Canadian prime minister, I mean any Canadian prime minister, I would realize that if I had to go through that, I could kiss my election goodbye next year. I mean, this will be a big issue in the next Canadian election. The optics are going to count a lot. So I would think that any Canadian politician, you know, whether it's uh, liberal, conservative, um, NDP, would look very, very cautiously at getting involved with Trump. There's one other thing, too. I mean, Trump has discovered this national security get-out-of-jail-free card, and he's using it in a way that was never intended. And having, you know, having having figured it out, sort of, and I I think it's illegal, personally, um, he'll use it again. I mean, he'll use it to bludgeon uh, his partners, his allies, or former allies, um, with, with whenever he wants something. So, to give in on this is not to end the process. I mean, I think, unfortunately, it would just begin it. So, I, you know, even though the consequences on our side, the alternative, uh, is very unpleasant. Um, with I that in mind, that with that in mind, Robert, way. with that in mind, then, I just got about a minute left here. Uh, what would the strategy be from the Canadian side, then? Do you, do you rag the puck here in, in the hopes that there's going to be a change in the midterms and maybe a change in attitude in Congress? Um, well, something has to happen to galvanize Congress and give it a spine, which is, you know, as you know, pretty difficult. I'm pretty sure the Democrats would support Canada, because Canada isn't what uh, workers in the United States are really worried about. They're worried about Mexico, not Canada. So the Democrats, I think, are likely to come on board. A lot of the Republicans have made very clear noises on the subject of Canada and the negotiations. And Trump's obviously afraid of it, because Trump is trying to, um, uh, God, what's he trying to, he's, he's threatening Congress um, with as much as he can, because obviously he thinks that might happen, you know, that, that Congress would contradict him, would overrule him. Uh, there's also the question of time. Uh, this is two months prior to the midterms, and it doesn't look good for the Republicans, so plainly what Trump wants is a triumph uh, that he can wave in the, in the election and uh, sort of undermine his enemies. Well, we don't have to give him that triumph. Well, obviously, and that's, uh, that's the game that uh, I guess we're playing at this side. Well, negotiations uh, start again tomorrow. Uh, we'll certainly see what cards they're going to play. Uh, Robert, thank you as always. Really appreciate your perspective on this. Pleasure. Take care. That's uh, Professor Robert Bothwell from the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.